bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, October 12, 2010. The Tax Credit Tuesday podcast is presented by Novogratik & Company, LLP, a national accounting and consulting firm. This week, I'll review a report that was issued by the White House that lists 100 projects funded by the Recovery Act. A number of these projects involve energy tax credits, low-income housing tax credits, and new markets tax credits. In the low-income housing tax credits section of this discussion this week, I'll examine the significance of the new fair market rents that were released by HUD, and I'll review a report that ranks the green building elements in low-income housing tax credit qualified allocation plans, or QAPs. Our historic tax credit topic this week is a court ruling in a case concerning a historic tax credit property that went into default and was foreclosed upon, and this all happened during the historic tax credit recapture period. On the new market tax credit front, I'll review the latest QEI issuance report, and I'll mention a job opportunity at the CDFI fund. Finally, for our renewable energy tax credit listeners, I'll summarize a new report from the Department of Energy concerning offshore wind development. I'll also provide a preview of Novogratik & Company's upcoming Financing Renewable Energy Conference. It's being held in Washington, D.C. the week after the midterm elections. If you're ready, let's get started. On September 17th, Vice President Joe Biden released a report titled 100 Recovery Act Projects That Are Changing America. The 28-page report highlights innovative projects that were funded by the Recovery Act. According to the report, Recovery Act projects are leveraging nearly $300 billion in other funding, or $3 in outside capital for every $1 of government investment. The report recognizes 12 tax credit projects, including 8 projects that received advanced energy manufacturing tax credits under Section 48 Cap C, and 2 projects funded by Treasury's Section 1603 grants, those are grants in lieu of renewable energy tax credits, and there's one new market tax credit project and one local housing tax credit property. The 48 Cap C uses include a General Electric plant that manufactures energy-efficient home appliances and is using $24.8 million in tax credits to expand and add 800 new jobs in Louisville, Kentucky. A solid-state lighting manufacturer called Cree, Inc., is issuing $39 million in tax credits to lower production costs of LED chips and fixtures. Cree added 375 jobs in Durham, North Carolina. Brevity Wind is using tax credits to produce wind gear boxes and main drive units. When the plant opens later this year in Muncie, Indiana, it's expected to employ 450 people. And DuPont is using $50 million in tax credits to fund an expansion of its Circleville, Ohio plant. The plant will manufacture a thin film solar application. The report also highlights two Section 1603 projects. One is the 150-megawatt Lost Creek Wind Farm in DeKalb County, Missouri, which provided 300 on-site jobs while under construction. And the second is a striator Coogee Ridge Wind Park. It's in Livingston County, Illinois. This facility 
will provide power to the Tennessee Valley Authority. You can read more about this project in October's Novogratic Journal of Tax Credits. In addition, a low-income housing tax credit property in Denver, Colorado also made the list of projects. The Housing Authority of the City and County of Denver will use a $10 million TCAP award to construct 100 units of housing that's near a light rail station. The housing is expected to serve seniors and the disabled. And finally, Pike Place Market in Seattle, Washington reopened in August with the help of New Markets Tax Credits. A second phase of development will use additional NMTCs authorized by the Recovery Act to reserve at least 2,500 jobs. The entire report can be found at www.taxcredithousing.com. It's on the Hot Topics Recovery Act page under Related Resources. Moving to local housing tax credit news, as I reported last week, the 2011 final fair market rents, FMRs, have been released and they're effective October 1, 2010. The 2011 FMRs are generally based on 2000 census data updated with more current survey data. The 2011 FMRs also include information from the American Community Survey as well as CPI rent and utility indexes. Now in looking at the data, for about 77% of the counties, FMRs for 2011 are higher than 2010. Conversely, for about 22% of the counties, FMRs for 2011 are less than 2010. The balance of the counties, about 1%, had no change on a year-to-year -year basis. Now the five areas with the largest increases were Ward County, North Dakota, nearly a 25% increase, Santa Clara County, California, over 18% increase, King and Snohomish Counties in Washington, at slightly over 11% increase, Denver, Colorado was a 9.3% increase, and Polk County, Florida at nearly a 9% increase. On the other end of the spectrum, those coming in with the five largest decreases were Washoe, Story Counties, Nevada at 14.5% decrease, Orlando, Florida at a 6% decrease, Genesee, Michigan at a 5.5% decrease, Broward County, Florida at 5.4% decrease, and Butts, Georgia at a 4% decrease. Now most of our listeners know FMRs serve as the basis to calculate subsidies under the Housing Choice Voucher Program. They're also used to determine initial renewal rents for expiring project-based Section 8 contracts. They're used to determine initial rents for housing assistance payment contracts in the Mod Rehab Single Room Occupancy Program, and they serve as a rent ceiling in the Home Rental Assistance Program. The 2011 FMRs will also likely affect tax credit and taxes and bond income and rent limits for areas where HUD used 2010 FMRs to calculate credit and bond income limits. Now there are 18 of these areas in 2010 which HUD refers to as metro high housing cost areas. 11 of these areas had FMR increases from 2010 to 2011. And these areas will likely see similar increases in their tax credit and taxes and bond income and rent limits. Seven of these 11 areas are located in Puerto Rico where the increase was about 7%. The other four metro high housing cost areas that had increases are Santa Cruz Watsonville 
in California at 4.4%, West Palm Beach, Boca Raton, Florida at 3.7%, New York City at 3%, and Los Angeles also at 3%. Now the seven remaining metro high cost high housing cost areas had FMR decreases from 2010 to 2011. Now these areas will not see an increase in income limits from HUD using its FMR calculation. However, it is possible that these areas could have an increase in income limits if the underlying area median income does increase. It should be noted that if these areas have a decrease, then it would only affect income limits at new credit and bond projects because credit and bond income limits have a hold harmless rule that prevents income limits from decreasing for existing projects. These seven areas that had FMR decreases were Honolulu, Orange County, California, Palm Coast, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, Orlando, and Jersey City. The 2011 FMRs can be found online at www.tashcredithousing.com. Simply click on Fair Market Rents in the Facts and Figures menu. For additional information about FMRs, I'd encourage you to contact my partner, Jim Kroger, in our San Francisco office. He can be reached at 415-356-8000. Now switching topics to the greening of qualified allocation plans, late last month, Global Green USA released its sixth annual QAP Green Building Rating Summary. As part of its Green Affordable Housing Initiative, Global Green produces an annual ranking and summary of green building trends in state QAPs across four categories. These categories are smart growth, energy efficiency, resource conservation, and health protection. The 2010 report also shows that the top 15 most referenced green building strategies are reflected in nearly two-thirds of the qualified allocation plans. This is a significant increase from 2009. Global Green says the broad adoption of these 15 measures indicates that they're seen as providing both high value and low additional cost. The report's authors believe this also suggests that a new, higher, and greener standard in affordable housing is continuing to emerge. For 2010, the report shows a steady increase in the percentage of points attained by allocating agencies across all of the four ranking categories. 33 agencies improved their scores this year, and the average score increased from 30 to 33. We also note that Connecticut and Georgia tied for the top position for the second consecutive year. Both earned 50 points out of a total maximum possible points of 55. A copy of the QAP Green Building Rating Summary can be found online at www.tashcredithousing.com. Simply click on Reports and Research in the Resources menu. Moving to historic tax credit news, the United States Court for the District of Colorado issued summary judgment last week in a case concerning a historic tax credit property. The case of Chevron USA versus Tim et al. involves a historic tax credit property that went into default and was foreclosed upon. Now back in 2005, the defendants in the case took advantage of the opportunity to invest in the purchase and rehabilitation of the former TWA Administrative Building in Kansas City, Missouri. Then, in 2007, they solicited Chevron, the investor, to make a historic tax credit investment in the project. To facilitate this investment, the defendants incorporated three entities. The first entity purchased the TWA building, and this entity is referred to as the owner. 
The second entity, and it's referred to as the manager, was designed to serve as the managing member of a third entity. This third entity was intended to be the building's principal tenant. Now, in connection with these arrangements, the investor and the manager executed a tenant operating agreement, making the investor the 99.99% investor member and the tenant and the manager its managing member. The tenant operating agreement provided that the tenant would allocate 99.99% of its profits, losses, and tax credits to its majority owner, the investor. At the same time, the owner and the tenant entered into an agreement to lease the TWA building to the tenant, as well as they entered a pass-through agreement, providing that the owner would pass through any historic tax credits generated from the restoration of the TWA building to the tenant. By virtue of these various agreements, 99.99% of the historic tax credits generated by the project would pass from the owner to the tenant and then ultimately to the investor. In exchange, the investor agreed to invest a total of nearly $7.8 million in the project. Meanwhile, in addition to the investor's investment, the defendants received some $18 million in loans from Colombian Bank and Trust Company used to finance the project. Then, in August of 2008, the bank that was the lender was placed into receivership. Now, believing that the FDIC might allow them to purchase or renegotiate the loan if it were to be considered underperforming, defendants elected to stop payment of the promissory note that secured the loans. This strategy backfired when the FDIC prohibited them from bidding on the note as insiders. Instead, the promissory note was purchased at auction by another entity and subsequently declared a default, thus accelerating payment of all principal and interest owing under the note. In light of these developments, the owner filed for bankruptcy. Ultimately, the owner entered into a settlement agreement that was approved by a bankruptcy court by which it transferred ownership of the TWA building free and clear of the lease between itself and the tenant. As a result, the owner could no longer accrue historic tax credits. Now, under the terms of the operating agreement, the tenant operating agreement, that is, in the event of any material breach of any project documents, including the lease and the pass-through agreement, the investor could require the manager to repurchase its entire interest in the tenant for an amount equal to plaintiff's paid-in capital contribution plus interest. This obligation was secured by the guarantee agreement on which the investor sued in this case. Under the terms of the guarantee agreement, the defendants unconditionally and irrevocably guaranteed that to the extent not performed by the manager or the tenant, they would repay the investor's paid-in capital contribution if the investor elected to have its interest repurchased pursuant to a section in the operating agreement. Now, the investor elected repayment, but the defendants had not repurchased its interest in the tenant. As of the date of the filing of its motion, the investor was owed about $7 million by the defendants in principal and interest. Now, under Missouri law, the investor needed proof that sums of money were due to it and that these amounts were due and owing under terms of a guarantee agreement. The investor submitted evidence establishing that there was money due as well as that it was due under the terms of the guarantee agreement. Specifically, the tenant operating agreement defined as a material breach the inability for any reason 
of the investor to claim at least 75% of the historic tax credits comp- contemplated by the agreement. The investor, as it turns out, had only been entitled to 57% of the projected credits. Now, the defendants argued that the investor should be stopped from recovering on his claim because he had failed to make a certain payment that was due under the terms of the tenant operating agreement. But the court found that this argument failed. The defendants also maintained that the investor could not recover because it breached, in another manner not described in the ruling, fiduciary duties in connection with the transaction. However, the court ruled that nothing in the record suggested that the relationship between the plaintiff and the defendant were in any way fiduciary in nature. The defendants also argued that the investor's request for judgment constituted a windfall, noting that it had received more than $4 million in historic tax credits prior to the sale of the property. The court found, however, that the quasi-contractual doctrine of unjust enrichment has no bearing on an obligation created by express contract. Moreover, the court ruled that any historic tax credits previously claimed are subject to recapture as a matter of law because the property ceased to qualify as investment credit property within five years of the date it was placed in service. For these reasons, the court found that the investor was entitled to summary judgment on his claim for breach of the guarantee agreement. Now, you can get a copy of the ruling online at www.historictaxcredits.com. And if you'd like to have more information about the content of the ruling, please give Tom Bosha in our Cleveland office a call. Now, in NMTC news, last week, the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund released its update of its ongoing Qualified Equity Investment Issuance Report. This report is issued monthly, and the report identifies, among other things, the dollar amount of allocation authority that's been issued to investors, as well as the amount remaining to be issued to investors. In September, just over $400 million of QEIs were finalized. This is a notable increase from the previous month, which saw just more than $100 million in QEIs finalized. The $400 million that was finalized in September is also higher than usual for this time of year. In September last year, only $90 million in QEIs were finalized, and in September of 2008, that figure was only $138 million. Also, based on the most recent report, there's roughly $7 billion in an NMTC allocation authority remaining for those qualified businesses looking for financing. A copy of the QI report, along with a graph illustrating the amount of QIs issued and the amount of authority remaining, can be found online at www.newmarketscredits.com. And if you're a qualified business looking for NMTC financing, I encourage you to contact Annette Stevenson in our Cleveland office. She'll also be attending our New Market Tax Credit Conference in Chicago next week. We have over 410 professionals registered to attend the conference so far. In other NMTC news, there is an open position at the CDFI Fund. The CDFI Fund last week posted a job opening for a New Markets Tax Credit Program Manager. In this role, the candidate would use their program and project management skills to direct and manage the New Market Tax Credit as well as the Bank Enterprise Award programs at the CDFI Fund. The CDFI Fund is inviting applicants with experience in the following areas to apply. Knowledge of the financial and management structure, operations, and practices of CDFIs and CDEs. Experience developing, implementing, and evaluating program guidelines, procedures, and regulations. As well as experience in recommending the selection and award of investments, loans, grants, and other types of awards. Applications for this position will be accepted through October 26th. You can find details on the job opportunity online at www.usajobs.gov. Simply search for CDFI Fund. 
We at Novogratz and Company are also pleased to report that next week, the Novogratz Community Development Foundation will announce the winners of the third annual Community Development Awards. Winners of the awards were chosen from individuals and projects nominated by Novogratz conference attendees, subscribers to the Journal of Tax Credits, and others in the New Market Tax Credit community. The awards recognize and celebrate excellence in individuals as well as community development entities that have made exceptional qualified low income community investments. Please come to the New Market Tax Credit Investors Conference on October 20th to join in the celebration in Chicago. We're also looking forward to hearing from two keynote speakers at the conference. The two keynote speakers are Brandon Carlton with the U.S. Department Office of Tax Policy in Washington, D.C. He's going to address the conference attendees on Wednesday morning at 9 o'clock. And then we have Rosa Martinez, the CDFI Fund Acting NMCC Program Manager, who's speaking on Thursday at 9 o'clock. Additional details about the conference can be found online at www.novoco.com events. And as I mentioned, it's not too late to register. In renewable energy tax credit news, last week, Energy Secretary Stephen Chu announced the release of a report from the Department of Energy's National Renewable Energy Laboratory that comprehensively analyzes the key factors of offshore deployment of wind facilities. The report is intriguing because while the United States leads the world in installed land-based wind energy capacity, to date, it has no offshore wind generating capacity. But although the United States hasn't built any offshore wind projects so far, the report indicates that about 20 projects representing more than 2,000 megawatts of capacity are in the planning and permitting processes. Most of these activities are in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic regions, although projects are being considered along the Gulf Lakes, the Gulf of Mexico, and the Pacific Coast. The report includes a detailed assessment of the nation's offshore wind resources and offshore wind industry, including future job potential. The report also analyzes the technology challenges, economics, permitting procedures, and the potential risks and benefits of offshore wind power deployment in U.S. waters. The National Renewable Energy Laboratory suggests that harnessing even a fraction of the nation's potential offshore wind resource, estimated to be more than 4,000 gigawatts, could create thousands of jobs and help revitalize America's manufacturing sector. The report also concludes that while significant challenges remain, effective research, policies, and market commitment will enable offshore wind to play a significant role in the energy in the country's energy future. In the report, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory says that offshore wind in the United States might be able to compete in coastal waters assuming the availability of economic incentives, including a federal production energy tax credit. A copy of the complete report can be downloaded from www.energytaxcredits.com. I'd also like to remind listeners that Novogratz and Company's 2010 Fall Financing Renewable Energy Conference will be held once again in Washington, D.C. next month. The conference is designed to offer two days of valuable networking and in-depth exploration and analyses of the renewable energy tax credit market. Ethan Zindler, head of policy analysis for Bloomberg New Energy Finance, will provide the keynote address on Wednesday, November 10th. In his current role, Mr. Zindler has written extensively on the Obama administration's moves on key regulations as well as on legislation before Congress. Attendees can expect to hear technical and substantive discussions centered on market updates, various financing structures, and issues unique to renewable energy projects. 
Among the many topics to be addressed in detail at the conference are the pertinent characteristics of leveraged renewable energy projects, the latest in underwriting guidelines and standards, the success of the utility-scale sized market, equipment prices, as well as a variety of legal and tax issues. For those wanting to learn more, a one-day pre-conference entitled the Renewable Energy Tax Credit Basics Workshop will also be held Tuesday, November 9th. The 2010 Financing Renewable Energy Conference is co-hosted by Chadburn and Park LLP, Nixon Peabody LLP, and SNR Denton. I do encourage you to go online to learn more about the event and to sign up. Simply go to www.novoco.com events. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another edition of Tax Credit Tuesday. We also invite you to submit topics for future podcasts. Please send us an email to cpas at novaco.com. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening.